Welcome to the Never Stop Getting Better podcast powered by Guardian Caps. Guardian Caps are a one-size-fits-all helmet cover that help reduce impact for your players during practice. Coach Perry is a huge proponent of Guardian Caps after using them at Pearl High School, and it was one of the first football items he purchased when taking the job at Nixon. Caps are mandated by the NFL for O-line, D-line, linebackers, tight ends, and running backs, and utilized by over 270 colleges, over 3,000 high schools, and over 600 youth programs across the country. As helmets become more and more expensive, the Guardian Caps also do a great job of protecting your helmet investment. See the link in our show notes for more information on Guardian Caps. In each episode, John takes you on a journey of growth, learning, and endless improvement. Whether you're an athlete, coach, or someone simply just striving to get better, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, John Perry. Welcome back to the early week edition of Never Stop Getting Better, where we've spent the last three weeks with one of our inner circle members. If you go back three weeks ago, it was Phil Wickwar, training versus exercise. Two weeks ago, it was Rick Jones, what to say when there's nothing to say. And last week, it was Chance Potts with The Way. Well, today is going to be the fourth in this series. And it's Chris Yeager with Humility. So before we get started with Chris, I would like to say, if there's anything you you guys would like to hear or any questions or any uh, thing you would like to be discussed on the early week edition of Never Stop Getting Better, feel free to shoot me an email. John Perry at NeverStopGettingBetter.net. I got a new email. John Perry at neverstopgettingbetter.net. If you have a topic, you have a question that you know you want to be answered on the air, shoot it and we'll give it our best shot. So today, we have one of my favorite humans on earth, Chris Yeager. Chris, give it to us. Okay, I'm going to share with you today some of the things that I have been learning about humility. And this is not something I can say that I have uh, got down in something that's a dominant quality in my life, but it's something I'm learning a lot about, and it's something that I, you know, really want to develop. But humility is a cornerstone of all character. Uh, it's a foundation of all character. Every quality of character that we can have in our life is basically it stems from or it flows from character. And C.S. Lewis said that humility is not that we uh, think less of ourselves. It's just that we think of ourselves less. And I've always thought of it as being uh, weak or meek, but really it's not. It's really strength that chooses to submit uh, for the benefit of others. And so the opposite of humility is pride. And sometimes we refer to this as the ego, but pride starts out with a question, you know, you know, what benefits me? And every relationship that pride has is a transactional relationship. In other words, I give this and I get this in return. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a giving, it's not a sacrificing uh, mindset behind pride. But the goal of pride is to impress others by acquiring things. And usually these things are possessions, things that we own. Uh, it can be our position and it can also just be power over other people. It craves attention, it craves admiration, it craves fame, and it craves uh, 
in today's world, what would be like in our social media, it it craves likes. And so uh, Richard Simmons III, in his book, The Power of a Humble Life, he writes this. He says that in his book that we have this great desire to win man's approval and admiration. Therefore, we seek to create a picture we want the world to see that impresses those around us. This picture creates the appearance that my life is prosperous, my relationships are flourishing, and I am a highly competent person who has his act together. However, we all know the truth about ourselves. Over time, our lives are riddled with imperfections in that we all have weaknesses, inadequacies, and many types of fears. We hide our true selves from the outside world. We hide behind smiling, pretty faces that we put on to impress the public. In hiding our true self, we fail to realize that we become imposters. Life becomes one great pretense. And so that's from, um, that's from Richard Simmons III's book, The Power of a Humble Life. And uh, the one thing, too, a quality about pride is that it's constantly comparing itself to other people. And one other thing, I, I want to share one more passage from his book, The Power of a Humble Life. Um, it says that pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being more rich, more clever, and better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's a comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Or one of the things I thought about when I was reading that is it's having something that somebody else doesn't have, you know, that makes us stand out. But the thing, too, when I read that, it makes me think that, you know, in pride, it's never satisfied. It can never have enough. There's never peace there. And it's a prisoner of uh, public opinion. And so there's a story about Andrew Carnegie, who uh, was responsible really for the expansion of the steel industry at the latter part of the 19th century. And he was born in Scotland in a little town called Dumfrieling. And But he, he immigrated to the United States and he grew up in Pittsburgh. And so one day he saw his mother was crying and she was in despair over their poverty. And so as a young uh, man, uh, Carnegie approached his mom and told his mom, said, Mom, don't worry. He said, one day... I'm going to be wealthy and said, we'll have a parade in a carriage with horses pulling the carriage. And so he couldn't console his mother. And he said, mom, what's wrong? And she said, well, even if we are rich, you know, no one in Dunferling, which was where they were from their hometown back in Scotland, he said, no one will see it. No one will know of our wealth. And so, uh, you know, the, the thing there is that there was a great desire for not only just to be rich, but for everybody to know that they were rich. In other words, to post it so everybody could see it. So the story was that when Carney became rich, they went back to Scotland to his hometown of Dunferling. And so he was going to donate money and build this huge library there in his hometown. And so um, they had a carriage just like he promised his mom, and they had... Uh, they had these horses pulling it just like he promised it. And they had this big parade and all the town turned out and she was so happy. 
and it really fulfilled her desire, which was not only for her son to be successful, but for all of her friends back in her hometown to know that he was successful. So they donate this library. And so the story goes that the library became outdated and small and they had to build a new one and they tore that down. And, you know, that's sort of how our earthly accomplishments are, especially when we seek it for the sake of, uh, of, of pride. But, you know, one thing that we have to, to, uh, to ask ourselves is whose approval are we seeking? You know, it's, uh, I've heard it said that we all have a significant person who in our mind, their eyes on us, and we really want their approval. But the person that, that lives uh, through, humil- through humility, basically they live before an audience of one. And the only approval that they seek is from their creator. And so that, there's great strength in that. There's great freedom in that. You know? And there's also uh, there's a willingness there to submit our life to the authority of our creator and his desire and his will for our life. So um, I thought that was a, a great point there as far as seeking out approval. Uh, all this reminds me of a story. You know, it, the one thing that that uh, that when you read about humility, you know, the uh, the the soul of man was not designed to hoard things and to store up things. You know, the soul of man was designed to to give. You know, to pour out to the point of being empty, and when it's empty. You know, something eternal and something lasting, you know, takes its place. And so that's the whole mindset of a humble life. And so it reminded me of something that happened this past year with our football team. We do a thing, it's called the Most Valuable Teacher. And so one of our teachers, Shane Martin, he spoke to our team. And I'll never forget this quote. It just really spoke to me. He said, what we keep uh, or what we withhold we lose. In other words, he was telling the players, whatever they hold back and whatever they keep for themselves, when they walk away from our program, there's nothing that they really remember. And he said, what we give, uh, we take with us. In other words, the things that we sacrifice are the only things from the program that we take with us into the rest of our lives. If we're holding it back, uh, we lose that. And what we give, uh, what we give, what we sacrifice for others um, we keep. And so finally, I want to share um, a story. And to me, this is a comparison uh, about uh, or the contrast between pride and humility. And so in the 1930s, um, there was um, uh, horse racing was very, very popular. And so uh, I read a book, and it's called Seabiscuit. And there was a movie in 2004, I think, that was made about this, this book. But anyway, it, it starts off telling the story about a horse by the name of Hardtack. And Hardtack was described as the greatest racehorse that never was. Uh, Hardtack raced in 21 races and won the first 20. And, and in every race, just about every race, Hardtack set a track record. Uh, matter of fact, in some cases, hardtack for the distance set a world set world records, but hardtack was very difficult to control. He was a very violent horse. Um, There's a story about how he uh, injured his trainer and seriously injured injured a jockey uh, because he was in the starting gate, reared up. The jockey hit his head on the top of the starting gate, you know, and, and was in uh, you know was in critical condition for 
for several weeks. And so very, very violent, very, very violent horse, very hard to control. But the, the story of his last race was they line up to start the race, the gates are opened, and so um, Hartag just sits in the, in the starting gate and refuses to race. And so the jockey, you know, whipped him and whipped him and whipped him and, and, and Hartag just refused to race. So the owner knew that Hartag was a very difficult horse, but he had this, got this idea that he would try to create the ultimate racehorse. So in his stables, he asked the trainers, what's the most, uh, what's the most gentle mare that we have? And so there was a mare by the name of Swing On that all of the trainers loved. It was the most gentle horse. This horse, sometimes they would loan this horse out for like birthday parties for children and things like that. And so it would, it would pull carriages and it was just, everybody loved this horse. And so uh, this owner got the idea that if he bred hardtack to swing on, the mare swing on, that they would get the ultimate racehorse. It would be this imposing, physically gifted racehorse with a gentle spirit. So they breed uh, these horse, these two horses, and as a result, uh, Swing On, the mare, has a colt by the name of Seabiscuit. Well, the minute they see Seabiscuit, they realize that he does not have the physical attributes of his father. He looks like anything but a racehorse. He's short, he's squatty, he's broad, which is the opposite of what all racehorses, what all great racehorses were. And so when he grew up, he had the spirit of his dad. He was difficult, he was lazy, he was very, very optional, very hard to train. And so the trainer, a uh, guy by the name of Fitzsimmons, really brutally tried to train Seabiscuit to get the, the difficulty out of him. He whipped him, he beat him, and, and you know, Biscuit was just, Seabiscuit was just uh, very, very rebellious in spirit. And so uh, Seabiscuit raced in 40 races and lost 30 of those races. As a matter of fact, came in last in most of them. So he was considered anything but a great racehorse. And so he was in a, a race, called, it's called a claims race. And so Seabiscuit placed last and was sold at a rock bottom price. And uh, so anyway, the, the man that bought him hired a cowboy by the name of Tom Smith to train Seabiscuit. So immediately Tom Smith ordered all the jockeys never strike Seabiscuit because he knew the kind of upbringing that Seabiscuit had had. And so Tom Smith was very, very gentle with Seabiscuit. He said the first time that he saw it, he looked in his eyes. He said, this is an exceptional creature. And he just, just from looking in his eyes, didn't look at his physical attributes. He just, you know, he said that he looked into his eyes and uh, through his eyes and into his heart is the way that they describe it. So, you know, he would train Seabiscuit and all the other trainers would laugh at the way he would train Seabiscuit. He would train Seabiscuit by taking long walks with Seabiscuit and talking with Seabiscuit. And so it transformed Seabiscuit into this incredibly great racehorse. And so this story takes place in the 1930s during the Great Depression. And the American people were really down, you know, and people were really looking for a hero. And so the thing that Seabiscuit represented was, one, Seabiscuit was one of the most unlikely of all racehorses to be great. And then, uh, you know, the other thing, you know, not only that, but, you know, Seabiscuit had had a, a, a rough start to his life and everybody in his stories, everybody was aware of that, that he was sold at rock bottom price at a claims race. So anyway, he, 
uh, Seabiscuit has this incredible, incredible uh, career. Uh, in the in the 1940s, he was he was the most he had the, the the greatest earnings of any racehorse. He won more races and had the greatest earnings of any horse. And he raced this uh, incredible horse by the name of War Admiral. And War Admiral had set track records, world records, and uh, War Admiral War Admiral was from the East Coast, Seabiscuit was from the West Coast. And so, anyway, they raced, and everybody's probably seen the, the movie, but Seabiscuit wins the race. You know, and at the end of the race, you know, it's talking about the background, hardtack and everything. And so, there's a great comparison there, you know, when you look at it is, you know, his dad, hardtack, was a very difficult horse with a very rebellious and very angry and very violent spirit and never saw his truest potential because all of his potential was masked with this violent spirit. Whereas Seabiscuit had this, the same street strength, but he lacked the physical qualities of his dad. But what he did have, he'd had the heart of his dad. And Tom Smith figured out a way to, number one, to bring out his strength um, through humble training and through gentle training. And so I just think that's a, you know, and so from that, Seabiscuit sees his potential. He sees what his, he reaches this, he became, you know, like a, a national hero. And, you know, he was just a very, very, everybody said he was just a very, very humble horse. So I think that's a great story, the comparison of, of great pride and humility. But anyway, like I said, this is not something I've mastered. This is something that's, it, it sparked my, uh, interest more than interest, sort of my focus now of what I'm trying to study because I really do want this quality in my life. And I, like I said, I think it's the, the cornerstone of all character. And so that's why it appeals to me so much. Thank you so much, Chris, for sharing. And thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I've enjoyed bringing the Never Stop Getting Better podcast to you, and I'm excited for where it's going to go. Any feedback, any suggestions? suggestions shoot it my way john perry at neverstopgettingbetter.net thank you much chris guardian caps are lightweight one size fits all football helmet covers for practice they reduce 20 to 33 percent of the impact depending on the speed and the location Great for the repetitive sub-concussive blows that add up throughout the week. Also great for body blows. Used by Clemson, Penn State, Washington, Oklahoma, 150 other colleges, and about 2,000 high schools across the country. Also protect that helmet. If your helmets are getting beat up at the end of the year, Guardian Caps can help protect that helmet investment.